Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. Justin Bullock here with my co-host, Gregory Galls. Hi, Greg. Hey, Justin. How you doing? I, I decided to go uh, to go with your look. I got a baseball hat and uh, let haven't shaved for a couple of days. This is what spring break does to you. Uh, I'm going to take it as this is millennial uh, rubbing off on you. You're spending so much time with me that you're absorbing some of my millennialness. It's entirely possible. <laughs> it's it's as infect, infectious as the coronavirus. So we have a uh, coronavirus, which is going to be one of our topics for the conversation. I don't think we've actually chatted with the crowd since we had Fritz Bartel on, which at that time we didn't have Super Tuesday results. But now That's we right. have... Super Tuesday results and another six uh, six dates from uh, yesterday. So uh, why don't we maybe start there? And then, of course, what's probably on everybody's mind if they're listening to this within the next couple of days of us recording this is uh, coronavirus and some updates there. But uh, let's maybe exactly. start with, uh, for a change, politics is maybe a happier note. Yeah, I was going to say, it's. Uh, I don't know if it's happy if you're a Bernie Sanders fan, but it's been, a, it's, it's been a remarkable political turnaround. Joe Biden left for dead is now the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party. And so this really started after Super Tuesday, right? I mean, he had a really strong showing after South Carolina, a really strong showing in the South. But the stuff I've read seems to suggest that Biden's building a, a much broader coalition than uh, kind of what Sanders has been able to uh, piece together. And perhaps even more to the point, broader than Hillary Clinton was able to do in 2016. Uh, if you look at the Michigan results from yesterday, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, March the 11th. If you look at the Michigan results, uh, Joe Biden took almost, I think, every county in Michigan. And that includes the rural counties, the Upper Peninsula counties, which, you know, there's not a whole lot of voters there, but they are uh, kind of your, your Trump, your Obama Trump Sanders voters. Mm -hmm. White working class, uh, not a high proportion with college educations. Uh, Sanders swept those counties in 2016. Biden took them all in 2020. So Biden has the, the African-American support that uh, Hillary Clinton had, but is adding in stronger support among uh, non-college educated white folks uh, and, and uh, college educated white folks. And so in that sense, you know, in, especially in, in those states up in the north where Hispanic uh, population is relatively low percentage, uh, that's a winning coalition for Biden. Biden. Biden won Michigan by what, about 13 percentage points? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, in the states that Sanders won, in essence, they're ties. Uh, Washington State, of course, it'll take a long time to count the votes in Washington State because they're mail-in ballots. But right now, Sanders and Biden are about tied. And even in the North Dakota caucuses, uh, Sanders got more, more support than Biden, but they're coming out with about the same number of delegates, it looks like. So I, I think that uh, this is, uh, it's, it's going to be a very uphill climb for Bernie Sanders. And the only question is, does he leave early? He did. Today, he said he's going to continue the race, but next week's, next week's states don't look particularly good for him. He's way behind in the Florida polls. Uh, Arizona, Ohio, and Illinois are the other states. It will be very interesting to see how, how Bernie does. And it's been remarkable how the, Democrat, the Democratic establishment has all rushed to Biden. 
Yeah, pretty much after Super Tuesday and even before the last six states uh, that we got to observe yesterday and uh, last night and this morning, that's the Democratic establishment was really kind of trying to throw their weight behind Biden to what seems like, uh, I mean, it's hard to know what influences what in these things, but it just seems to be to some significant effect potentially um, for the results from this Tuesday. I mean, Sanders walks away with no decisive wins. I mean, some close calls, some that are, you know, just a short distance from one another, but no 10, 12% whopping with, with Elizabeth Warren out and with him an opportunity to kind of coalesce the progressive wing as, as it's kind of been talked about. It just seems like it's not quite as large as the kind of broader coalition of moderates that, uh, that Biden's pulling together, at least at the moment. But, you know, I think last time we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, just before Super Tuesday, and uh, or no, before South Carolina. And I would yeah. have thought, you know, Joe Biden was on the ropes. He was done. He comes back with a big win in South Carolina. And so I suppose there could be another momentum swing, but certainly a lot of states have voted now. There, there could be a momentum swing, but in the same way that the, the Democratic primary system, which basically gives delegates to anybody who gets 15% of the vote, uh, keeps Sanders uh, apparently close, right? Biden's only up by about 150 delegates, I think. It also makes it almost impossible for Sanders to overtake Biden, right? Because it's not like the Republican primaries where after a while they go to winner take all, uh, which I think from a party point of view is not the worst thing in the world. You want to wrap this thing up, right? But for the Democrats, right up, to con right, right up through, through April, uh, it's going to be uh, that's my phone ringing. That's, that's right. Yeah. I got a little bit of background noise out my out my way today. Also, <laughs> we don't have uh, we're not uncorked today, so we've got to liven up the. Uh, yeah, the we have to we have to liven up things. Right I'm sorry. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let that ring and go to and go, go to message, and it has. So there we go. But the, the, for the Democrats, the problem is even if Sanders were to to say win Ohio and Illinois. He would probably win him really close, and and uh, you know he and Biden would get about the same number of delegates. Uh, you're right. I mean, the thing about Biden is he wins Missouri, he wins he wins Michigan by double digits, and of course he wins Mississippi by I think 40 percentage points. Oh my goodness, yeah. You know that way he gets you know the lion's share of the delegates, maybe two thirds of them. But you know in an election where 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 Biden and 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 Sanders are you know within a couple percentage points of each other. They basically split split the delegates. Uh, Sanders must be having deja vu. I mean, this is sort of what it felt like at about this time in the race against Hillary, where he ex was except, except he was winning primaries. Yeah, 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 yeah. He won Michigan. You know, he went home to to Vermont, uh, and you know, came out with a statement today saying he's continuing in the race. But uh, his pathway, I think, looks less, even less possible than it did in 2016. We'll, we'll see. You know, next week, four big states, Florida, Ohio, Illinois, Arizona. If we get the same kind of results that we got this week, then it, it, it starts to become futile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll get to see. I think I, in an earlier episode, um, uh, put my money on my hypothetical, not real money, on a brokered convention. Um, and so it seems to How's be... How's that looking? Yeah, it seems to be not... Uh, <laughs> 
it's almost like you had uh, some good thoughts about the system here and how it starts narrowing down in uh, in March. <laughs> well, band bandwagoning is a real phenomenon, and <laughs> and we saw it in spades. Every single Democratic uh, uh, candidate, except for Elizabeth Warren, came out in favor of Biden. Cory Booker, Kamala Harris. Uh, uh, Andrew Yang, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean Andrew Yang, yep. Everybody, and uh, and and the fact that Elizabeth Warren didn't immediately go to Bernie is also an interesting mm -hmm. thing. So you know, he, she might have been able to help him. <clears throat> she certainly heard him in Washington. You know, with mail-in ballots that, that a lot of people voted before uh, Warren left the race. Uh, so, so what is the uh, what are the early? Um, rumblings do you think on what would be a, um, a reasonable v VP candidate for Joe Biden? Is, uh, is, is that something Elizabeth Warren's holding out for? Is that something Klobuchar uh, might be up her alley or uh, somebody like Kamala Harris? Or what do you, what do you, uh, what do you think is a smart move or uh, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, that's, uh, I think they're all holding out for that. I think it's, it, it, you know, he can't, he can't pick another white guy given the zeitgeist of the Democratic Party. Uh, one, one, white, one, one white guy is enough. I mean, you know, we can share yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, the only time where two white guys make sense is when you and I are doing the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think- Not in I charge of anything, but just listening to ourselves right. talk. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, to me, the dream ticket, if you want to beat Donald Trump, is Biden and-, and, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, but uh, you know, I could see, I could see uh, an argument for Biden and Cory Booker. I could see an argument for Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, I could see an argument for Biden and Stacey Abrams. I could see an argument for Biden and Julian Castro. Uh, it seems like, uh, to me, the Warren, a Warren nomination would. Uh, do a reach out to the progressive wing of the party, uh, nail down those suburban women who were so important in switching the House from Republican to Democrat in the 2018 elections. Uh, I, but, but I think you can make, it, it's probably, you know, the African-American candidates, maybe less of a case because African-Americans are turning out for Uncle Joe already. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but I, I actually think that, that, you know, cutting into the, to, you know, that last time I thought that the, 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 ana, the animus, the, the hard feelings between the Sanders supporters and the Clinton supporters were, were one of the many factors that helped President Trump sneak in through the Electoral College. I think you want to try to avoid that as much as possible. And I think Warren is the one who's best placed to do it. Yeah, I was sort of early on before all the excitement of the actual voting coming down the pipeline and uh, lots of bandwagons to jump on. Biden Warren ticket was sort of what I would think would be the best kind of winning combination. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're thinking Joe is kind of the moderate coalition builder and Warren uh, appealing to, to women and appealing to uh, the progressive wing, uh, seems like might also be one if she uh, did not come out and endorse Bernie Sanders immediately. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think she's keeping her options open. 
Could you imagine a debates with Mike Pence and Elizabeth Warren? Holy cow, that would be wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Pence would do better than Mike Bloomberg did, but uh, <laughs> but I think Senator Warren would be uh, pretty well positioned. The yeah, debates between Trump and Biden, uh, that, that, those are going to be minefields for Biden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, and he uh, he can have a little bit of a quick temper sometimes on the campaign trail, as uh, multiple reports are suggesting. So that's uh, that's for sure. Trump might be able to needle him just enough to get him really uh, really worked up and been out of shape. But yeah, my, he's also been my, doing this a long time, so maybe he has some sense about him. My campaign my campaign strategy for Biden: he goes to his nice beach house in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and he sits on the porch. <laughs> And just hangs tight until the election's over. <laughs> gives gives the occasional speech like he did last night. Yeah, he he can give an occasionally good speech. Occasionally, yeah. I uh, I enjoy one of his speeches. Get get those teleprompters up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He can do the showman statesmanly thing. Yeah, and let and let President Trump just keep talking and talking and talking about how great the economy is and what a great job he's done with the coronavirus. Well, I think you uh, you threw me that segue, but it's probably about time uh, to make that transition. So I think uh, we met, how long has it been? Maybe a week ago when we were um, interviewing with Fritz Bartel and we were having our first uh, attempts at behavioral modification, trying to shift away from handshakes at, yeah. uh, at your request, which I it took me about two uh, interruptions, uh, <laughs> corrections to get it right. Um, but at that time, in my head, um, I was thinking it was still a little early to be worried about some of the coronavirus things in rural, uh, you know, in College Station, Texas, and in my own travel. And since then, as we were just kind of discussing before we started, um, I think the experts uh, are kind of coalescing around uh, one voice here that we need some social distancing, that we need to be a little bit more uh, aware of our surroundings and be sure we're washing our hands, staying out of large groups, uh, not, um, not engaging in any uh, unnecessary travel. And, uh, you know, even two days ago, I, I think I thought these were um, measures that were a bit more than I was happy to get on board with. But, you know, now listen to a couple experts give, uh, public health experts give some talks, the universities have started coalescing around um, you know, uh, moving to online and closing down. And um, so from my vantage point, it seems like it's about time that uh, we start kind of changing some of our behaviors to respond to what the World Health Organization today called um, a pandemic. That's right. Uh, I think the public health imperatives here are pretty clear. Uh, and it's, it's going to mean, uh, it's going to mean some sacrifices. Uh, I think it's going to mean sacrifices for our students who would like to travel to do their capstone reports to their clients. I think it's going to be sacrifices for our faculty colleagues who have conferences both internationally and domestically and speaking engagements. And I, I just think that these are going to have to be canceled. Uh, you know, may, maybe this is an excess of caution and who knows in a month. Uh, things might 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 have loosened up, in which case you could you could encourage students to maybe do their capstone travel. Uh, but I think right now the the prudent response is the one that uh, the school is adopting, which is uh, we're not planning any domestic travel. You know, the university has banned international travel. 
and we are not planning any domestic travel at the school uh, until further notice. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it went from, at least in my own personal life, seeming to have no uh, uh, direct impacts on my day-to-day -day life, even though you know how bad it had been in different countries. My brother is, uh, uh, was planning a trip uh, abroad, and so there were some complications with that, but not kind of real shifting things up. And then uh, the university announced their stuff yesterday, or Monday one, um, yep. and uh, all of a sudden, you know, I started paying, I, I followed a couple of podcasts and read a few things, and it was like, okay, it's, it seems time. Um, and so actually all my travel, we were just discussing this, all my professional travel until at least the second week of May is uh, essentially canceled. And most of yeah. the organizations have either postponed or trying to move into a virtual format or have, uh, or have canceled. Mine too. And, and I think that that's gonna be increasingly the rule over the next couple of months. So uh, I was listening to a few um, reports. And, and as, as we speak, the International Studies Association conference, was, which was going to be held in uh, Honolulu at the end of March, has just been canceled. So that was something that many of our faculty, I was going to go to that, but I, uh, I, I canceled uh, on Monday my participation and uh, uh, basically everyone else on the panel I was going to be on had, has canceled. And now just, just the email just flashed on my screen that uh, ISA has canceled the entire conference. So I think that this is what we're gonna see going forward. ISA, the International Studies Association, I should say. And my read of this is the reason is, you know, so some people have some responses to this that are some thoughts that I had myself also, which were things like, well, everybody's gonna get it or things like it only affects, you know, uh, people that have some, uh, immune issues or who are elderly. And um, so one, um, the whole idea is to slow, to slow the spread of it. Uh, the reason being we're quite some time away from a vaccine and it gives us right. uh, more time to respond both from a vaccine standpoint, but also having enough respirators and having enough hospital beds for the general society, even if eventually some large percentage of the population is going to get this, it, it turns out that the timing really matters. And if we can, you know, the language everyone's using is kind of flatten it out and slow down the growth, then flattening you have a chance curve. of getting, getting your arms around it, you know? Yeah, flattening the curve. It's, very, it's a very convincing argument to me. One of the, the best statements of kind of the, the necessity of taking on these, these, in many ways minor, for some people, major inconveniences uh, was made by Dan Dresner, who uh, teaches international politics at the Fletcher School. And he has a, 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 both a funny and a perceptive uh, uh, kind of a blog at the Washington Post. Okay. Uh, and and Dresner's, Dresner's Tuesday column was really good. And, and he basically said that, that these kinds of inconveniences, canceling our talks, canceling our, our conferences, uh, postponing our travel, canceling our travel, he called them a social tax, and, mm. and it's a, a social tax that we should be willing to pay to protect the vulnerable. Yeah, that's really. And I think that, and I think that that's the way to think about it. You're not going to get sick. You're too young, right? We, we we know that the coronavirus is is not a serious threat to the long-term health of people your age. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a little more serious to old people like me, but I'm relatively healthy. And, you know, if I get it, I'll have this, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, it won't be horrible. Yeah. But, you know, you don't want to become a transmission vector uh, because there are more vulnerable populations. And there's absolutely no reason why our convenience should put those people at risk. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, hopefully we're able to, uh, to flatten that curve. I was listening to some uh, reports today. Um, the, some of the early moves by the administration, uh, one, of the, one of the stories I was reading at that was reading that the Trump administration did a, did a decent job of getting on board of trying to limit international travel early on. And that, uh, according to the public health experts and the pandemic experts, suggests that that helps buy time on when the peak of the spread is going to be. But then there's been a lot of concern since then, uh, which I believe was, I'm going to say late January, but now I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, mm. that even with that bought extra time, we haven't really put in quite an effective response. You know, one of the, one of the things that they were talking about is a shortage of, of testing and some of the, yeah. the challenges around um, developing tests and getting them approved quick enough and um, making sure we have them available, having enough beds um, and, and kind of proactively getting in front of some of these health issues. And it seems like um, there's been some attempts at that, although there were some, some cuts from kind of emergency preparedness uh, in this administration as well that, um, that certainly shouldn't you know, be neglected as well. Um, but um, it, it doesn't quite seem like a, it's really kind of mobilizing efforts and the, the president kind of keeps dismissing it. And, and on, on one hand, it's, yeah. it's, you know, you don't want people to panic. And I've come across some panicked people and <laughs> you certainly want to avoid the panic, but I've noticed with people I know um, and, and to some degree as well, since the, you know, the national government isn't kind of unified in its response it fractures the responses at the state level and at the institution levels. And all of this is kind of leading to a delayed kind of half-mashed plan that seems like maybe we could have done a little bit better with. I mean, what's your, what's your insight here? Yeah, I, I don't want to dump too much on the Trump administration. I think this would have been a hard thing for any administration. But, and, and, and the, the CDC had testing kits that were uh, defective. Mm -hmm. on the first round and that that would have happened to uh that would have happened to any administration cdc made a mistake coming out of the gate uh you know i, I have a lot of faith in the cdc uh but uh and and i i you know i take their advice but that was that was a shame and so we were we weren't we weren't early into the testing and because we weren't early into the testing i think we weren't early into the into the recognition of the spread of the virus I, I think that the administration was about a month late in putting together a, a high-level coordination team under the vice president a uh, month three weeks late on that I think if you can blame the president for anything in the structure of government uh, we know that the previous administration on the National Security Council had a, a uh, kind of a pandemic planning unit mm -hmm. on the NSC. And uh, it would have been nice to have that that might have been able to alert the administration 
to the problems internationally, uh, I, I think that that's, I think you can fault the administration for that. Uh, the other thing I think you can fault the administration for is the president's not on message. Uh, you know, sometimes he, he gives the, he gives the, 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 the appropriately somber warnings. And sometimes he says, oh, you know, it might all go away in a bit. Uh, and I think, I think the president needs to be on message, uh, which is a hard thing to get him to do. Uh, you know, it's, the stock market is now 20%, has lost 20% of its value. That's officially a bear market. Uh, and no politician would like that if he's in charge to see a 20% reduction in the stock market that could also be a harbinger of economic downturn more generally. But uh, now's the time for the president to step up and, uh, and show some leadership capacity. And I think that, frankly, I think his reelection depends on it. Uh, this is his first real serious prolonged crisis. And how he handles it will determine whether he gets reelected or whether he's a one-term president. And right now, uh, I, I got to say that uh, I don't have an enormous amount of confidence in him. Yeah. Well, and the uh, you know the economic impacts are are certainly going to lag uh, at least a little bit here. I mean, you know, I was thinking through this with a, another political scientist friend uh, earlier today, but you know um, most. Lots and lots of the population um, lives paycheck to paycheck, and lots and lots work in service industries and uh, retail and jobs that kind of require people to be out and about doing things. Um, and you know, all that kind of has a potential to trickle. I think as people consume less and they're indoors more, and um, particularly if the response isn't more inspiring at the national level, um, it. Um, does seem um, that there's at least room for um, an extended bear market and a significant um, correction of some sort or, or, or sell-off. Uh, yeah. Kind of and imagine I, the triple effects of everyone. This is why not everyone is shouting from the rooftop, stay home, because there's going to be some real um, serious, uh, likely to be some serious economic consequences over the short term. Right. And the, the, the president has gone to Congress to talk about a stimulus package. But I think it, you know, it has to be targeted. I don't think it should be targeted to specific industries that are uh, suffering a downturn. You know, the, the American oil industry, fracking, you know, with the collapse of oil prices, that that's going to be a rough, that's going to be a rough thing. But I, I don't, I'm not sure that we should be bailing out the fracking industry. I'm not sure we should be bailing out the cruise industry, right? Uh, but I do think that we need to have uh, a government fiscal response that, you know, covers people's sick time. Uh, you don't want to take money out of people's pockets because they're sick and they can't work. You don't want to take money out of people's pockets uh, because their factory has to shut down for a month because, you know, you can't have 100 people, in, in, you know, in, in an enclosed space. Uh, we got to find some way. I don't know if it's an expanded food stamps program or, uh, or, you know, or uh, one policy tool that that I've. Yes, you're the public administration person. Yeah, Tell us the policy tool. I have something. Um, 
so uh, won't be without its own controversy, but in some ways this is exactly what a well-functioning unemployment insurance program could do. Is but if you're not unemployed, right? If you're just, if, if you're just furloughed, right? If, or if they say, look, you, you still have your job, but for three weeks we can't pay you because the factory is going to have to close down until this thing passes. But so, that, I mean, will unemployment cover that kind of thing? It doesn't by default, um, but we've had special changes in economic hard times to extend, like to extend benefits, for example. Um, but all it, you know, all that information from an infrastructure standpoint is already the Department of Labor already has those uh, kind of stats to do that. They've already got that set up so that you can prove when someone is unemployed, unemployed through no fault of their own. So the mechanisms are already there. So you could just you could just have a kind of a new addition to it that is temporary uh, temporary effect uh, effect from a pandemic, and yeah. it could be up to you know, uh, six weeks or something like that, that, yeah. hey, uh, because of what's going on, we already have this infrastructure here. You don't have to have been unemployed. It's if your business is in a spot right now and is going to be shutting down for the next six weeks, um, we'll replace your wages. Or if there's cutbacks over the next six weeks, we'll replace a percentage of them. Right. And it's or administratively if, still hard to do, but the infrastructure is already there. Or if you're sick and you and you have a job that doesn't have sick leave. Exactly. Yep. Right. So, it so could, the infrastructure's there, although I don't know that there's any kind of political will for it. And then talking about it in terms of unemployment insurance is, is pretty boring to people. But the, the infrastructure's there to do it if you wanted yeah. to kind of do some demand side protection for, for workers as they, were, as they were out. That sounds like, I mean, I would much rather, uh, in essence, subsidize the, the people who work on the fracking sites, the oil workers than to pass that money through the companies, yeah. which is, I fear, what a Trump administration uh, bailout. Well, taxes bid. is the first thing we're talking about, which is, yeah. is its own kind of pass through. Um, yeah. And so, um, but yeah, I, I, that's the one that I've, and it's even actually, you know, when I thought about some of the technology stuff, it's a broader application, but there is a way to think about unemployment insurance as temporary uh, assistance for technological unemployment as well as we kind of make some shifts in society, but there's, there's these things are hard to do and there doesn't seem to be much of a stomach for them. Um, yeah. The US. yeah. Well, I think, I think that the, the whole AI issue, which is your ballpark, uh, we don't have time to think through that right now. I mean, I think we gotta, we gotta do some things fast. Yeah. That's my take. There's a lot of uh, things from a, a, a market sector and governance standpoint that needed to be done yesterday. Um, yeah. And there's, we need all kinds of different um, standards and regulations for how the government can use these tools um, because there's right. all kinds of ways that they're being used for surveillance that in general we're not comfortable with all the way down to kind of law enforcement decisions. Uh, but even in the way that the private sector is using the using these tools and kind of selling your data without your permission. And the, the, the model there is one that can also be a little exploitative too. Um, yeah. So these things need to, we need to get on top of them, but it's, it's another thing where there's, there's some conversation kind of at the policy level, this is getting a little bit of, of play, but it's really hard to figure out ways. This must be how those pandemic experts fail trying Trying to get yeah. everyone to pay attention, pay attention to being prepared, and when it's happening, like, hey, this is no, 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 this is a real, a real thing we should be concerned about. But we should, you know, we should also note 
that a lot of this isn't going to be done at the federal level. That's right. The decisions at the state and local level are going to be, uh, in some ways, much more dramatic and, and, and impact people's lives uh, much more directly. I mean, we saw the governor of New York send the National Guard into New Rochelle uh, to try to, to limit the, the spread of the, of the virus. And New Rochelle seems to be a center in New York State. And so he sent in the guard to, not to limit travel as far as I can tell, but uh, basically to let people know that this is really serious. And, and uh, I think that we're gonna see more of that at the local level. Yeah. Uh, you know, Italy is a democracy and the government has basically closed the country down to try to flatten out the, <clears throat> the curve of, of contagion of the virus. And I think that, that you know, when we say the Chinese closed down Wuhan, well, of course, they're, they're an authoritarian government. The government do whatever it wants. You know, when, when, when governors declare states of emergency for public health reasons, they can do a lot of things. And uh, I think we're going to see a lot of action at the state level. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, not having the most coherent federal strategy and working to partner with the governors kind of by default is going to lead to a lot of the experimentation and uh, problem solving being done at the state. And, and some arguments, maybe that should, who, who should be leading and then asking the federal government what they need to help them execute those plans is uh, you know, not an unreasonable thing to ask your state to be kind of taking the lead on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the states have lots, I mean, it varies by state as I understand it, but the, the state governments have a lot of power when it comes time to uh, how they will administer things during a state of emergency. And a lot of normal things uh, don't go to normal, all the way up to, you know, closing public spaces and closing down businesses and closing commerce, public schools, closing public schools um, which we're already getting some of in Georgia. Uh, uh, yes. We're in Oconee County, where University of Georgia is. I saw an update today that they're, uh, uh, they're closing their schools. Um, so yeah, I think we're in some, it'll be something to kind of carry on the conversation over our next couple of recordings um, when we have uh, some pandemic experts uh, with us to kind of talk about what is, how has this played out in the past? We, what we are going to be, we are going to be all pandemics all the time on the podcast for the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next Tuesday, we have uh, executive professor Andrew Natsios, our colleague at the Bush School, who's a uh, former director of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, who has been working on the international elements of pandemic preparation and prevention uh, for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And he's gonna have a lot to say. And then uh, two weeks from now, why don't you set up our guest two weeks from now? So uh, we have uh, Christine uh, Blackburn and uh, Jerry Parker, is that uh, right, who are with us? And they actually uh, teamed up to give a talk at the Bush School just as um, the coronavirus well, was well, starting. For the, on main campus. On, the whole, on main all. campus, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, you can look into them. There's actually a, a link on the Bush School website to some of the information they've gone over. We'll be asking them about that, kind of how things have evolved even since then. You know, the thing with Christy, this. Right. Christy, Christy is an expert on, on biological transmission. Uh, Jerry Parker is uh, a vet. Uh, he's uh, 
an, I think a, a, a director of one of the major programs in the vet school, in the one health program here at, at, at A&M. He has been uh, involved at both the federal and the state level in terms of, of, of uh, preparation for these kinds of outbreaks. Uh, so they're both, uh, you know, certified experts on the topic. And I think they'll, they'll, they'll tell us to wash our hands, but they'll tell us some more things too. Yeah, and it'll constantly, you know, it'll be evolving between now and then. But if you are listening to us and it's early March, um, we uh, suggest that you listen to the public health experts and think about ways in which you can uh, be modifying your own behavior to help, uh, help us reach this flattening of the curve. That'd be helpful. Yep. Wash your hands and don't touch your face. <laughs> yeah. That's hard. Uh, yeah, it is hard. I, you know, there's a video of uh, one of the health, health experts saying, uh, don't touch your face and then immediately touches their face. Touching his face. You can't help it. Uh, every time I touch my face now, I'm like, ah. It's like being told, don't think about elephants, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't That's help but think about, don't touch your face. You immediately go to touch your face. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think there was, there, those takes were hot enough. I think there's takes right enough. We covered the the coronavirus, the Democratic primary, potential economic consequences. I think we're on a roll, man. Yep. Um, so we'll look forward to. Uh, oh, we've started releasing some of the uh, episodes for the encampment series. So if you haven't called Great. those out, check that out. And we might sneak in one more brief mini series this season for people. So keep staying plugged in. We might have some more fun coming down the pipe for you as well. All right. See you next week. See you, Greg.